Emmaus Church is a church community delighting in Jesus together for the joy of Ankeny. We hope the following sermon brings you closer to the joy we find in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about us, please visit EmmausChurchAnkeny.com. All right. Good morning. Morning. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, so that passage ends kind of abruptly, and that's because I, in my planning, knowing that next week is uh, the beginning of Pentecost, which we'll talk about in our announcements afterward here, um, we, uh, the next passage is all about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. So it just worked out well that I could kind of cut this passage in half and we can do the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit next week, which is a great way to start Pentecost, right? <laughs> Deal with that fun issue. So anyway, um, this morning as we come uh, to this text, I have a question in mind. But before I jump into that question, let's go ahead and pray and ask God to help us as we, as we think about this text. God, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the opportunity to... Uh, to look upon what Jesus is doing here and establishing his kingdom uh, by calling his apostles. And we just pray now that as we come to this text, that your spirit would open our eyes, that you would help us, uh, as the psalmist prayed, to perceive wonderful things in your law, that we would um, see uh, not only your glory as king coming to establish your kingdom, but Lord, I pray this morning as we think about our place in it, I pray that you would help us to see where we fit in your kingdom. We pray and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, in light of what I just prayed, um, have you ever wondered, what's my purpose? Where do I fit? What's my role in the world? Um, I think this text will help us answer that question this morning. Um, years ago, I was invited to a friend's house to hang out. Uh, it was probably, what, five or maybe five years ago. And, and I was happy to go. Uh, whenever I hang out with that person, it was always fun. Uh, he cooked up a ton of delicious food, and the plan was to have drinks, eat good food, and talk fishing. It's like my ideal night, right, to hang out with a bunch of dudes and do that. Um, and I wasn't the only one invited. And so a stream of my fellow overweight, middle-aged white guys came strolling in for the same experience, right? So this, is, this, is, this was going to be our evening. But something happened really quickly in, in, the, in this hangout. My excitement about hanging out with my friend quickly turned into kind of a little bit of anxiety and just general sense of it just felt uncomfortable. I didn't know virtually anyone other than, other than my friend. And as I heard them talking, and I don't, I don't know what it was. It wasn't that anybody said anything off or anything like that it was just i realized i don't fit in with these people like i i don't i i don't fit here i did not see where i fit and 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 i just felt it really deeply it's to the point where i just made up an excuse got up and walked out like it was just i don't know if you've ever been in a situation like that um especially when you don't have anything obvious to complain about it was just me right i just didn't feel like i fit I know that there are a lot of people who feel this way in the church. They walk in and they see what's going on and they're like, where do I fit in this crazy puzzle? They wonder where in the world do, or they just feel like they don't fit. And some leave because of it right away. They'll just not, they'll make up an excuse and they'll bolt. 
right? <laughs> or they'll stick around for a while and eventually grow tired of that feeling, not ever finding the place where they fit. Um, and this morning, I want to address that feeling because I think all of us feel it to some extent. Um, but I think um, some of us feel it more powerfully and, and have a deeper awareness of that. And so what I think we see happening in this text is Jesus showing us where we fit in the church and in his kingdom. And I, I hope that you are encouraged by it. And I hope um, that this will help you more confidently step in to the role and the place that God has for you in the church and, and in his kingdom. So um, the, the answer that Jesus gives here. Um, is that we all share a similar role. We all share the same role. We all share the same purpose, no matter what we do and where we're at in the church. And our role is this, is that we are an agent of new creation. That's that, that is what Jesus calls everyone in the church to do. We all share the same role and we fit together through that similar calling upon each other to be agents of new creation. So to show you that, we're going to see four things in the text. We're going to see first, a work of new creation, second, a blessing, third, uh, Jesus appointing, and then fourth, authority. So those are the four things we're going to look at in the text. So first, new creation. We see this in verses 1 to 6 here. Verses 1 to 6, Jesus is doing a work of new creation. He shows us that his kingdom is about doing the work of new creation. It comes from the final, uh, last week we learned that there's these five scenes where Jesus is doing work for the kingdom, establishing his kingdom. And as he does so, he's entering into conflict with the Pharisees. And there's these five scenes that Mark kind of cuts and pastes and put together for us to see how Jesus's kingdom interfaces with the traditions and the culture of the Jewish people at that time. And Jesus and Mark's conclusion, he quotes Jesus to give us an explanation of what's going on. His conclusion is in verses 21 and 22 of chapter 2, where he says, can't fit new wine into old wineskins because it's going to burst. You can't put an unshrunk patch on a, on a worn out garment because that, that unshrunk patch is going to shrink and tear up the old garment. And he's saying his kingdom is going to erupt and destroy the traditions of man, the kingdoms of this world. And so we, we saw that last week with, clear, with clarity. And he's showing this morning again how his work of new creation is incompatible with the traditions of the Jewish culture at the time. Uh, in verse 1, we see there that Jesus, or I should say this, Jesus doesn't just say uh, that the traditions of the world are Contrary to the traditions and the culture of the kingdom, he shows that the kingdom is superior than it. And we're going to see that here. Um, verse 1 shows that Jesus goes to the synagogue. Jesus goes into the synagogue. It says there in, in verse 1, he entered the synagogue. Uh, this, he goes into Jewish church. This is Jewish church. This is where Jewish people went on the Sabbath to worship. And we know that he's there on the Sabbath because the next verse, in verse 2, he would he uh, they went to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath. So this is a, Jesus is going to church when on their day of worship, which would have been Saturday, um, and he goes into this public place that's packed with people. And as he gets in there, we know that Jesus encounters and sees this man with what's called a withered hand, with a withered hand. 
And as he, as he does, well, the first question is, what's a withered hand, right? What is a withered hand? We get no further details. Mark doesn't care to tell us what this means or what it looks like or why he had it or what happened. Yeah, dad's hands are withered. <laughs> um, we don't know if it was from birth, like a congenital defect, or if it was a developmental defect, or if he had some kind of stroke or neurological disorder. Uh, but the details are unimportant as to why it is that way. Basically, this man's hand was probably curled up and he could not stretch out his fingers. He probably he could have had something like cerebral palsy where they where the hand is is all balled up. We don't we don't know what it was. But the point is, like, like you said, the, the details are unimportant. This is a man whose life in the ancient world would have been harder, much harder than the average person. And he would have been probably socially isolated. He was probably standing by himself at the back wall, isolated from everyone else, alone. And he probably stuck out. He probably stuck out. People probably saw him. And there was a sense of discomfort or uncomfortability around him. And if you saw this with Mark, you would feel bad for the guy probably a little uncomfortable, and you wouldn't really know what to say or do about it. You'd probably feel pity for him. Verse 2 shows us that, that the Pharisees, gotta, they've got their stink eye on Jesus. They're watching him. Because Jesus has been defying the traditions of and values of the scribes and Pharisees. He's been in disrupting their traditions and their ways of doing things. And as we learned last week, the Old Testament law commands people not to work on the Sabbath and are instead to worship and enjoy God on that day. We, knew, we learned that last week. And the Jewish leaders over the centuries, they believed that law. They believed that law, the, the Pharisees and that. They developed a whole tradition of what it looks like to obey that law in their world. And they built up a very robust tradition with extreme detail as to how that law should be observed. And despite the fact that Jesus does respect that law in the Old Testament and obeys it, he has no regard for the traditions that were built up and the cultural expression of that of their uh, uh, application of that law in their culture. So the leaders and the Pharisees are watching him. They're watching him. They're hoping to see him do something that's contrary to, the, to their tradition so then they can level an accusation at him that he is actually breaking the, the Old Testament law. So that we see there in verse 2, they watch Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. They want to see. They, they're looking at Jesus. They're like, he's going to find somebody who's needy, and he's going to meet that need, and he's going to violate our cultural traditions and laws in order to do it. And We want to we catch him in the act. These Jewish leaders, and this is important for us to hear because we can do this. We do the same thing. We do it all the time. We don't even realize it. These Jewish leaders confused God's law with their traditions. They confused God's law with their interpretation of God's law. We believe the Bible, but sometimes we think our view of what the Bible says, whether it's right or wrong, is the same thing as the Bible. You've, you've seen people do this. We all know. Last week I pointed to the thing uh, that, uh, for those who weren't here, what else? One of the things I brought up, <laughs> it hasn't been posted yet, so you wouldn't know it. And Jennifer. Uh, but uh, one of the things I brought up was uh, dressing up for church. When I grew up, American tradition, you honor God by dressing up for church. That's what you do. Well, that's a cultural tradition. 
Nowhere in the Bible does it say to do that. And so saddling people's consciences as if they're sinning against God by not dressing up for church, while well-intended and well-justified that someone might choose to do that, is certainly not anything the Bible would, would say we, that we need to have a sore conscience about, right? We can confuse our traditions and our interpretation and application of God's law with God's law itself. And this is what was happening with these Pharisees, and they were lording over the people with this and controlling them. They, they had a particular view of the way in which the Sabbath should be observed, and it didn't include healing people who needed healed. In fact, the Pharisees had a long-standing debate for centuries about what exactly constituted work. This is really interesting. This is why Jewish people today don't turn on lights on the Sabbath, because the Old Testament says don't light a fire on the Sabbath, and so turning on a light is technically combustion, and so if you're with a Jewish person on the Sabbath, you have to turn the light on for them if they're going to have any light in their house, because they won't do it. This is the kind of thing that they would do, and this happened in, in that time as well. So they had a whole thing about how to handle people who were sick on the Sabbath. They had a huge tradition, very long tradition. They had this, uh, this was one rabbinic um, uh, piece of history I was reading. is really interesting. It was talking about what to do if a person has a sore throat. That if it looked like that person was going to die, that person could open their mouth and you could drop medicine in their throat and it wouldn't be uh, breaking the Sabbath. But if they weren't going to die and they just wanted some relief, then that would be breaking the Sabbath, practicing medicine. However, if they were going to die, it was okay. But if a woman's giving lab has labor on the Sabbath, it's perfectly fine to help her, like be a doula or whatever on the Sabbath. But um, if, if someone has a chronic illness, like a withered hand or some other disease that they're not going to die from, if you heal them or help them, you're actually breaking the law. So this is the way that they... We're interpreting things. This is the way that they, they saw the world and the way they understood how to handle the Sabbath. So knowing that Jesus was under the scrutiny of the Pharisees and knowing their tradition, Jesus here takes the bulls by the horn and calls the guy with the withered hand forward. He knows what they're up to. He knows, and, he's, and he's going to just defy their traditions and say, you guys don't know what you're doing. You guys are silly in your way in which you're trying to apply the law and you think that your interpretation is actually the same thing as the law. And so Jesus calls a guy forward and is just going to confront the issue. And so there in uh, verse, what is it, verse 4? Um, no, verse 3. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. He calls him forward. He's just going to put it out on display. And in verse 4, and I spent way too much time on this verse, and I'm not going to spend very much time on it here. This, doc, this took up way too much time in my week. Because this question, just I couldn't figure out what's going on with it. Um, but we see Jesus ask a question here. And here in verse 4, he asks this weird question. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To serve life, to save life, or to kill? Um, and like I said, I did too much reading on this. But here, here, is what, here is what Jesus is doing. Jesus knows what these Pharisees are up to. He knows what these Pharisees are up to, and he knows he's defying their tradition. He knows what's in their heart. Look there. It says there in um, uh, verse 5, He looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. He could see their hearts. He knew what was in their heart, and he knew that they were wanting him to deprive this man of healing in observance of their tradition. And so he asked them, he asked them, 
Should I do good or should I do evil, knowing that while he is acting for this man's good, he knows that their hardness of heart is going to lead to verse 5 and 6, where the Pharisees in verse 6 went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians, a political faction, against him on how to destroy him. So the Pharisees are going to join up with a political pack, those who support the Herods, and he and they're going to work with him to figure out how to jerry-rig the, the political system to execute Jesus. So they are doing evil on the Sabbath, and Jesus wants to do good. And Jesus exposes them for their hardness of heart in this moment in asking that question. He's, and he puts them on the spot. And they can't say anything because they know what they're doing. They know they're trying to kill a dude. And so they don't, they don't have any response to him. And instead, what we see Jesus do here is he speaks, just like we see in Genesis chapter 1, let there be light, Jesus says, stretch out your hand, and the dude's hand stretches out. We see a work of new creation. Jesus, it's just, it's just like what we see in Genesis chapter 1. God speaks, and creation responds with life. Jesus speaks, and this man's hand comes to life, and he no longer has scleroderma or whatever it is, right? Stretch out your hand, and it's restored. So where do you fit in the kingdom of God? How does this help us know where we fit in the kingdom of God? In Christ, you are the recipient of God's power to bring new creation in life. You've received new life in Christ from God. In Christ, you are a new creation, 2 Corinthians tells us. He's spoken into the darkness of your heart, and He has called you to life. To stretch out your withered soul and to embrace Christ and enjoy the fruits of His kingdom. Your position, your place in the kingdom is one who gets to taste and eat and see the new creation work of Jesus. That he, that in Christ, you get to experience the same thing that this guy experienced. Just in a different way. Rather than with a chronic illness, um, immediately, eventually, we all get that, right? Um, we, we recognize that we're going to have glorified bodies, thankfully, one day. Um, and maybe healing comes in this life. But ultimately and fully, our, our souls are brought into this new creation where our souls are brought to life to enjoy Jesus. And so we see our first place in the kingdom of God is that we receive this new creation work of Jesus. That he will defy cultural and political powers to come to us and bring us new creation. That is, and so we get to enjoy that place, that place in His world, in His kingdom. The second thing we see then is God's is Jesus blessing in verses seven to twelve. Jesus blesses here in verses seven to twelve. Now, when I think of this section, all week long as I've read this over and over again, I have in my mind the Bush's Beans commercial. You know that commercial, the Bush's Beans commercial, where at the end of the commercial he says, roll that beautiful bean footage. That's what I think is happening here. We're, we're seeing that God is rolling the beautiful bean footage for us. This is like a hype video in written form. It's like a montage of scenes that come together and highlight and display the triumphs and beauty of the king establishing his kingdom. This is Jesus' highlight reel. It's his B-roll footage. It's almost like this flips through scenes and sights so that you'll look at it with wonder and awe. Beautiful bean footage is intended to whet your appetite to make you crave beans, right? That's what it's intended to do. And a football hype video is intended to whip up your excitement to cheer for your team, to give you something to yell and cheer for. And this section here in verses 7 to 12 is intended to cause you to look upon Jesus 
to be filled with hope that the promise given to Abraham is finally coming true. To look upon Jesus and see, oh, in this guy, all of the promises to Abraham are finally coming to fruition. Abraham's promises are finally coming. Back in Genesis 12 and verse 2, God says to Abraham, I'll make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And we know this We know this is about Jesus because this is what Paul tells us in Galatians, that it's all about Jesus, that Abraham's promises. And we see it clearly in Mark in this passage. We see the promised blessing, promised to Abraham, manifesting and emerging and, and flowing out from Christ everywhere in this, in this passage. We see that Jesus was blessed by God in His baptism in Mark 1.11. So He fulfills that Abrahamic promise in Mark 1 as, a, as one who's baptized. But here in this passage, we see that His name becomes great. His name becomes great. In, in, in verse 9, we see that Jesus, we, the great, um, that in verse 9, the, Jesus' name is so great, He's literally being crushed by so many people coming to Him. They're, they're looking for a boat to get away because the crowd is so great and people are coming from near and far to find Him. His name has become great in the world. People are coming from all over the map. The nations are coming to Him. We see that in verse 8. Um, in verse 8 it says, and the people were coming from uh, Galilee, Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, from beyond the Jordan. So beyond the Jordan. Beyond, out uh, in... in in the, in, in the land of the Gentiles, they're coming. From around Tyre and Sidon. All, people are coming from all over the world, and they're flocking to Jesus. The whole world is, is coming to Him. And in verses 10 through 11, we see what He's doing as they come. It says, He healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around Him to touch Him. And wherever other unclean spirits saw Him, they da fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. So Jesus is bringing blessing. He's healing people of sickness, and he's driving back the kingdom of darkness. He is, he is overcoming sin, sickness, and death. It's like the movie of Jesus hits, uh, like the movie of his life in Mark hits this point. You hear the kind of, you hear a guitar drop, like right after Jesus does this, like, mic drop thing in front of the Pharisees and heals this guy. And it's like the guitar comes in and the scene cuts to all these visions of people coming from all these different places, running toward Jesus. And you got like ACDC playing in the background, like back in black. And it's like, it's like you, this is like, like the, the montage in the movie of Jesus. Like everything is like coalescing in this moment. His kingdom is coming and people are coming from all over the world, and it's like rolling the beautiful bean footage. So, And up to this point, it looks like the kingdom is a one-man show, right? It looks like it's a one-man show. Jesus is doing all the work. He comes as the king, and it's in him that his power is being manifest. The big question for us, the, big, the question that we might ask about the followers of Jesus in this text is, are we nothing more than receivers of the blessing, right? Are we nothing more than people who receive the work of new creation? Is our only role to receive and enjoy the kingdom? Is there anything for us to actually do? Is there a place for us? And that's what we find next. Is Jesus does something crazy in verses 13 and 14. He climbs a mountain. Now this is odd. He goes and he climbs 
a mountain. Doesn't get in the boat at this point. He that, that comes later. Instead, he climbs a mountain. Why is Jesus in verse 13 all of a sudden an alpinist? Right? Why is he climbing mountains in this? So in verses 13 and 14, and then in verses 16 down to 19, we see Jesus appointing people to something. So why is Jesus climbing a mountain and appointing people? The answer to this question is awesome. It's crazy. In short, in short, mountains in the Scripture are images of Eden. They're images of Eden. Anytime you see a mountain in the Scripture, what you're seeing is something that's pointing you toward the Garden of Eden, to the place of creation, the place of new creation, just like the original Eden. It's where a new humanity is created and given a vocation and a role and a place in the world. This is what's happening. There's a whole biblical theology that not only reflects this ancient perspective on mountains, it's also reflected in other religions. Other religions saw the tops of mountains as the places where God met, met humanity, whether they're worshiping Baal, Marduk, or whatever other god in those Canaanite religions. All religions saw, including the Old Testament religion, uh, the Jewish religion, saw mountaintops as the place where God came to dwell with man. And it's, and it's also the place where Eden was. We know this from Ezekiel 28. It tells us that Eden was the holy mountain of God. Eden was on the top of a mountain. It's the place where God created humanity, and it's the place where God was dwelling with humanity. In Eden, on the mountain, God creates humanity, gives them vocation, having dominion over the creation, to tend it, to keep it, as they walked with God and communed with Him. That's what happened in Eden on top of the mountain. He gave them a law, do not eat of the tree. And on that mountain, God creates and gives his law, communes and assigns a place and a role for people in the world. On Sinai, we see the same thing. Moses goes up to Mount Sinai on the top of the mountain, communes with God for 40 days, gets a law, constitutes a, 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 a covenant to make a people for himself. And all... It's, Gives them vocation, priesthood, and all these other roles and responsibilities in the world. It's the same thing. We find this also on Mount Carmel because the Baals, the Baal worshippers, thought they were going up there to worship their god. Elijah, and uh, was it First Kings eighteen? I think it's First Kings eighteen. Elijah goes up there with them. He's going to worship the true God, and the true God comes and receives his worship. Uh, there's a uh, there is a great biblical scholar who wrote a book I'm very fond of. He, he helps us with this understanding of mountains being a place like Eden. He says it like this. His name's Peter Lightheart, if you're wondering. He says, The Bible is full of high places that touch the floor of heaven. Sinai, Ebal, Gerizim, Pisgah, Zion, Moriah, the, and Olivet, the upper room where Jesus has a new covenant feast with the Twelve. Each is a recapitulation of Eden. And so are all the mountain-like things in the Bible. Altars are mountains, towers are mountains, temples are mountains, pillars, and temples are usually built on mountains, which is interesting. Pillars are mountains, and even some have Edenic flora on their capitals. So when you look at the look at the temple as it's built on top of a mountain, it's also constructed to look like Eden on the inside, which is crazy, right? So Jesus is making a choice to ascend a mountain means that he has Edenic work to do. He has creation work to do. He's got new creation work to do. And what he's about to do is the work of God in Eden. He goes up as Moses to Sinai here. The evidence is here in verse 14. 
what does he do when he gets up there? He appoints the twelve. He appoints the twelve. He appoints, he creates a new humanity. He creates a new people here. This is the equivalent of God identifying Adam and Eve as his, or of God committing to make a people of Israel with Moses on the mountain. That's what's happening here. Jesus goes up, and he's going to do a new create, a new work of create. He's creating a new humanity. These twelve are going to be his the new the new people that he's bringing into the world. The new his church is what he's creating here. His people, just like in Eden and at Sinai, he does it to commune with them. In verse fourteen, look what there right uh, right after the uh, the parentheses, whom he also named apostles, so that they might what be with him. He wants to commune with them. He, he, he creates this people to commune with them just as God walked with Adam and Eve in the garden. So Jesus wants to be with his people. It's a place where he might, might be with them. He makes a people so that he can walk with them in the cool of the day to bring his spirit among them as he did in the tabernacle um, with Moses in, in the desert. And then he gives them a vocation. He gives them a role. In verse 14, it's to preach. And in verse 15, it's to cast out demons. He gives them a job. This is your job. This is your role in the world. This is your role in the kingdom. You're going to preach, and you're going to cast out demons. Adam and Eve were given authority to rule over creation, exercising authority over God's earth, and that's what is happening here. God is, or Jesus is giving the, His people the role and the responsibility to take dominion over the earth, to take rule back from Satan and bring it under God's rule under the kingdom of God through preaching and through casting out demons. Rather than, uh, rather than telling Adam and Eve to do the easy thing, or rather than telling the church, these apostles, to do the easy thing of taming a lion, he's saying, I'm going to send you out to tame the devil. Which is, that's crazy, right? It's, it's like even better, it's superior to what you find in Eden. Even more authority. Which is really hopeful because Eve doesn't tame the devil in the garden. Eve succumbs to the devil. And here, the apostles, God's people are going out and they're taking the devil out, which is unbelievable, right? He calls people to push back the rule and reign of Satan to bring new creation and redemption in the world. But Jesus also ascends to Golgotha. See, not, not only does Jesus ascend to make a, a new people here and to, and to appoint people and to give them roles in the world, he also ascends Golgotha. He ascends the, the high place in his death and in his resurrection, where he suffers the wrath of God, spilling his blood for you, so that you might be among his disciples, so that you might be fully accepted into God's family, into his people making, making sacrifice for your sin. In Christ, you're the children of God, brought into the family, brought into the fold of God. And through Christ's blood and through his body, we are given a place and a role in that in that kingdom. God communes with you now. He's made a home in you by His Spirit and calls you also to preach the gospel of the kingdom and to join in on the work of God to bring His kingdom through the church. We need to know this. Every role in the church, every role, every person in the church, in the kingdom of God, has those two roles. To preach the gospel and to cast out demons. And maybe not do exorcisms like you see on the movie, right? in the movies, but to push back the kingdom of darkness, encourage people in repenting of sin, and to fight with them against temptation to sin, and if necessary, 
to literally cast out demons. Like that is, the church is given this responsibility. These 12 were the apostles, and yeah, they had a unique role in the world that looks different from ours, but nonetheless, we are all similarly called to this. This, this is Matthew 28. Go therefore into all nations preaching the gospel and to baptize. And if you don't know what baptism is, it's, it's claiming people and regions of the world for the kingdom of God over the kingdom of darkness. That's what baptism is, taking and casting Satan out of people and out of the world and claiming people for Christ. Sure, the pastor has an obvious role here. Um, he preaches. The pastor may be called if there's a demon around, right? <laughs> um, but this is the role of every Christian, and you need to know this. This is your place in the world and in the church, however it looks. Whether you're a greeter, this is your role. Whether you're leading a CG or a journey group, whether you're right now, you're Brenda right now down with Emmaus Kids, that role is as important as this role is that I'm occupying right now. We're all doing the same thing. We just have different places and different ways in which it's done. Whether it's just standing here on a Sunday morning saying hi to somebody while they walk in, we are doing the same work. We are all called to this common role of, and this common vocation of preaching the gospel and of driving back the kingdom of darkness and taking ground for the kingdom of God. And my question is, do you know that that's your place? Do you know that that is the role that God has called you to? It's your job. It's your job. That's, that's, what, that's your place in the world. That's where your place in the church. And it just depends on however it manifests. Right? God has chosen you, just as He did these disciples, to do this task. He's brought you to the mountain for this purpose. Okay, last then, last then, authority in verses 14 and 15. There's a kid, uh, a 20-year-old kid um, named Malachi Love Robinson. He's from some city in Florida, I can't remember which. He called himself a doctor, and he made a ton of money practicing without a license. He got caught, he got sent to prison for good reason, uh, because he was not doing a very good job <laughs> and was hurting people in the process. And the point is, medicine is high stakes. Lives are on the line. You need to have some training, some expertise, some qualifications to have authority to do that kind of work. And the question is, what about the work of healing people, dispelling demons, preaching on matters of eternal consequence? You would think you would need some kind of license to do that, right? The kinds of people Jesus calls to himself as disciples, these apostles that we see named here, are not exactly the most qualified people to do the work. I don't think any of them went out and got a license. Most of them were illiterate. Most of them were unqualified for the work. Those that have education and means, like Matthew, were crooked, rich people manipulating, exploiting off the poor. Like, what gives these dudes the right to go out and preach in the name of God? What gives these dudes the right to go out and push back the kingdom of darkness? Like, where, where, where do they get off going out to challenge the Pharisees, the religious and, and political elites? How in the world are people like this going to go out and preach and push back the kingdom of darkness? You might think the same about you. But look at verse 15. Notice this in verse 15. Just call your attention to one word there. Authority. He says, 
and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. In other words, God qualifies the disciples to do this work. He licenses them. He gives them a license. Here's your license. Go out and do this work, right? The work of Jesus on the cross and through his resurrection transforms and empowers us to do the work of the gospel. He qualifies us. He gives us the license to do this. So you, just like these disciples, are uniquely and truly qualified to preach the gospel. Do you know that? You are uniquely qualified and you have the authority of God behind you to preach the gospel and push back the kingdom of darkness. Colossians 1.12 tells us that Jesus has qualified us for this, for all of, all of His riches. We are qualified to do this work. He's given us authority to do His work. And sure, these apostles were given unique authority and a unique job at this time, but what we find them doing is the same work as Jesus was doing, moving forward the kingdom of God through, throughout the gospel. And then once again, in the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit comes and empowers the church to do the same thing and qualifies the church to do the same thing. What right do you have to preach the gospel? Do you have people tell you that? What right do you have to tell me what to believe? Well, you have the authority of God. You, you literally have the authority of God to, to, to preach the gospel and to call people to repentance. You literally have the authority of God to push back the kingdom of darkness. In and of yourself, maybe not so much. <laughs> but God has qualified you. He's given you a license to do it. What right do you have to bring in new creation? To overcome the kingdom of the devil and set people free to pray for their healing? You've literally been given authority by God to do that. The church is given, and, Mark, and we see this in Matthew 16, the church is given the keys to the kingdom of heaven to bind and to loose, which is absolutely crazy because if you've read the Old Testament, people don't, do it right. <laughs> the book of Judges is the greatest. But God comes along and says, okay, I'm going to do a work through Jesus to transform you and qualify you and empower you to do this work and to do it in the image of God. How are we able to plant a church as small, unqualified as we are? How are we able to do it? We're able to do it because God's given us the authority to do it. God has given you authority to do it. He's given... He, the same way God gave Adam authority to rule over creation, the same way He gave Moses authority to set up a kingdom in the desert, the way, same way He gave David authority to rule as king, even over Saul, He gives you and me authority to set up a kingdom in the church, to preach, to resist the devil, to overcome sin, and to bring heaven and earth to this place. So, what is your role? What is your place? This is all of our role and all of our place in God's kingdom. It's an amazing transition in Mark. We see the gospel taking this crazy turn. It's all Jesus' work, power, and authority. And here, he turns it on us. And he empowers us to go out and do it. Which is, it's crazy. It's crazy. We're a new people of God, new creations, sent out with a new vocation to do the work in, a, in an amazing, more powerful and superior way than even Adam and Eve had in the garden. So that's why Jesus climbs a mountain this week. It's pretty cool. So let's pray and thank Him for that. Lord, we thank You and we praise You for Your Word. We thank You and praise You, God, that despite our innate and native um, disqualification to do any of this, 
you have in your grace and in your mercy chosen to transform us into people that are qualified, righteous, and people who have authority to do this. It feels weird. And so we just pray, I just pray, God, that as we think about this, that not only would you help us to see our role in your world and in your church, but Lord, I pray that you would fill us with hope and faith to carry out that vocation, to carry out that role for your glory and for the joy of our city. We pray and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we'll turn now to the Lord's Supper.